Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish life. We are Irish life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. I'm Laura Slattery and on this week's show we'll be asking the important question. If you can't eat a bacon sandwich with dignity, can you still be Prime Minister of Britain? We'll be discussing some of the more eye-catching aspects of the media coverage of the UK general election and asking if the traditional press is losing it. Influence, that is, to social media. We'll also be talking about Greece's repayment of IMF funds with Irish Times European correspondent Suzanne Lynch. Will it happen? When will it happen? And what happens if it doesn't happen? But first up, Britain is voting on Thursday in a general election widely predicted to end in a hung parliament. MPs, spinners and pundits are having to adjust to the idea that coalition politics isn't going away anytime soon. But how has the media landscape changed? Or has it? Joining us on the line are Dr Catherine Simpson of University of Manchester, an expert in European politics and public opinion, and Irish Times London correspondent Mark Hennessy. Mark, coming to you first of all, has the media coverage of this election campaign been different than the coverage in 2010? Well, it's been more partisan, probably, certainly, well, definitely more partisan and probably more hysterical than we've seen for quite a few years. The, it's been quite striking how in the weeks running up to the campaign, the p- papers in Britain have gone back in very much into their, into their traditional positions. The Daily Mirror uh, being pro-Labour, but the majority of the papers that take political stands being very strongly conservative and quite rapidly so. Uh, the Daily Mail being uh, a particular example of that. And, and the Telegraph. And we saw yesterday with the Telegraph where they had a lead story talking about uh, Ed Miliband plot to occupy number 10. And that gives you an indication of the kind of language that's being used in the run-up to uh, voting when there is a possibility and a probability of a hung parliament and all sorts of instability afterwards. Some of the language is quite dangerous in that they are implying a degree, more than a degree, of illegitimacy on the part of a minority Labour government, when in fact it wouldn't be illegitimate if it can make the numbers in the House of Commons, it can make the numbers. But it, it will be doing so against the backdrop of, uh, of these kind of claims, which are going to be very, very damaging constitutionally in every other way. So people are, are playing with fire here. Yes. Now, I mentioned the uh, the Sun's uh, bacon sandwich uh, headline in the intro. Uh, 
there. But, um, you know, along the lines of the Telegraph headline you mentioned, uh, the Times today has a headline, Miliband trying to con way into number 10, says PM. So, again, mm. this, this is a question of legitimacy um, on the part of somebody well, who's running for, for, for election. Yes, I mean, it's been, it's, been, it's been fueled by Cameron because he has uh, he started off taking these kind of attacks against the SNP, painting them as effectively marauding picks coming south of the border to lay waste to England. And uh, it has carried on in that vein now that there is a possibility of Labour being in a position where it could form an administration uh, with uh, the support of the SNP or perhaps by some other means, but in a, a minority format. And the papers, however, probably didn't even need Cameron to be as irresponsible with uh, his language as he has been, because in some of his conduct, frankly, has been uh, quite outrageous. But uh, we, we are looking at a situation where the papers are being more rapidly partisan uh, than previously, uh, even in 2010, where there, there was, you know, you knew what badge everybody was wearing and, and they, they were all uh, twisting quotes to suit their own agenda. So there's nothing greatly new about that. What is new is the degree uh, of it that is taking place. And if you look at, at recent British uh, media history, we've gone through an unusual period where from Blair 1 in 97 through to Blair 2 uh, and the third Blair election, uh, papers were taking sometimes uh, unusual positions given their own historical uh, background. The Sun, for instance, opting for Labour, um, uh, the FT opted for Labour on another occasion and, and many others. Um, so they were taken out of their uh, normal boxes. Then uh, Blair left, uh, the Labour sh- uh, flag started to, to dip. Brown took over, got into a bad campaign, and people got back into traditional positions. And coupled with that, you have all the usual problems that uh, newspapers that we all know about and newspapers are having in the internet age, where there is... Uh, an increasing uh, desire on the part of some elements of the press to become more hysterical in an, an attempt to gain an audience online. And that sober doesn't do it anymore, that you have to be uh, hysterical and effectively you have to rant. And some of what is, uh, has happened in Britain over the last couple of weeks hasn't really been a whole lot uh, short of ranting. So, I mean, it is almost like, uh, you know, clickbait, but, but in, in printed form, mm-hmm. you think. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Simpson, um, um, would, would you agree that, that the media has been aggressive, more aggressive this time around? I think what the main thing is to kind of note from from what this general election is, and, and media in general, is that media is a two-way causation. So do the media lead or are they following? So what I mean by this is, are they leading the agenda or are they following the agenda? And this is very difficult to kind of pick apart um, whether, you know, the media outlet, you know, newspapers in particular are leading on a certain political ideology or whether they're following that political ideology to, it, to its stance. You know, a day before the general election, you know, we've seen the Telegraph, the Times, the Daily Mail, uh, the London edition of The Sun supporting the Conservatives, um, the Daily Mirror and the Guardian supporting Labour, um, the Financial Times and the Independent, you know, calling for the continued coalition of the Conservatives and Lib Dem, and then probably unsurprisingly, the Daily Express for UKIP. Now, the latest poll of polls shows that the Conservatives and Labour are split at 33%, the Lib Dems are 9.3%, UKIP 13.5%, and the Greens are about 4.8%. So this two-way causation, this idea of either leading or following, it's also played out in the opinion polls. And if the newspapers were leading, 
would the Conservatives not be polling better given the endorsement of four daily newspapers as opposed to, say, Labour's two? Or if newspapers are following, um, is that why there's such a near split between Conservatives and Labour? Um, and I suppose this kind of split as well as we've seen, you know, when you take the example of The Sun, um, you know, the London and Scottish edition of The Sun are backing two different political parties, the SNP in Scotland and the Conservatives in the South. Um, and this has probably been hotly debated whether this, this split in political allegiance will affect the vote. Um, the Sun is often seen as kind of a good catch for a political party to gain endorsement, um, as is read by the greatest number of people who've switched allegiance in the past. We've seen, you know, from it's, it's the Sun that won it, won it um, in the front page in 1992 general election when the Conservatives won. Um, but I, I don't think no actual newspaper could claim it was the newspaper that won it for any particular government, um, given this difficulty really in, in explaining, well, is, it, is the media leading or is it following? Um, you know, Mark, Mark talked about that newspapers set the agenda, but they're also like kind of echo chambers for the broadly shared views of their readers re- and also kind of reinforcing these existing views. So what you find to see is that newspapers' readers tend to vote for parties that broadly represent their interests um, in the same way that they buy, you know, people buy newspapers that broadly speak to their interests. Um, and so far, that elect- this election has, has, has pretty much been the same. Um, what we do know um, is that newspaper circulation and readership of newspapers is dropping like a stone. Um, but the influence of the media is still important. Um, but, you know, we, we already kind of touched upon it a little bit at, about online media outlets. It's the consumption of the media which is different. So kind of this clicking on headlines, reading part of an article, accessing an article via newspapers, online portal or via social media such as Facebook and Twitter. Um, so media consumption has probably become all the more pick and mix as opposed to, say, blanket or, or mass consumption. Um, and I think that's the kind of the change I would see um, in this general election. So it's a kind of a, a fragmented politics um, and a fragmented media as well. Um, do you have a, an opinion, Dr. Simpson, on um, how the parties have performed on social media? Has there any, is there any party that's shone for you on social media? Um, I don't particularly think so. I think um, political parties, certainly in this general election, have had to engage with social media um, because if they haven't, they've been left out in the cold. Um, and, you know, we, we've seen that Ed Miliband with, you know, on YouTube speaking to Russell Brand, um, you know, it gained a mixed reaction. You know, the Twitter reaction to Millie Brand um, was mixed. People mocking Brand for his ego trip and Miliband for his accent. Um, but I don't think that I could... I don't think anybody could turn around and say that one political party or one political party leader has come out on top so far on social media. Okay. On the Scottish uh, question, because this really has come to the fore uh, in this election, Mark, I mean, how do you account for uh, this this particular importance this time, this this massive swing that is expected, the SNP? Um, Is it just a fallout from the uh, referendum result last year? No, it, it's it's not. I mean, there are, it's, a, it's a more complicated situation than that. The Scottish National Party has been making gains in uh, Scottish Parliament elections for uh, quite a few years. 
Uh, traditionally, people in Scotland have had a tendency to vote Labour for Westminster elections, but increasingly to vote for the Scottish Nationalists uh, for Holyrood. What's happening on this particular occasion is that a larger number seem to be prepared to do it on both uh, particular occasions. The Labour flag in Scotland has been falling for quite a few years, partly because they took the voters for granted. Uh, there was a failure to keep constituency operations uh, operating at full tilt, and that has given uh, an opportunity. Equally, you've had uh, a diminution of the whole sectarian divide in Scotland, where traditionally Catholics uh, were more supportive of the Union because they had a certain fear of um, a Protestant-controlled Scotland to a certain degree, putting it into somewhat simplistic terms. The SNP has worked very hard under Salmond over the last 10 or 15 years to build up ties with the Catholic Church, particularly in the central belt in Scotland, uh, assuring them that uh, Catholic education would continue and stuff like that. So there's been a whole variety of factors that have slowly led to uh, the build-up of support for the SNP. We saw them win uh, or take control in Holyrood in a minority government in 2007, uh, then uh, winning by a majority in 2011, and they hope to do so again uh, next year. Whether they will or not, we'll obviously have to wait and see. So then they had the impact of the referendum, which energized a lot of the population, politicized people who had never been politicized before, and going into the campaign or going into voting tomorrow, it looks as if the 45% pretty much who voted for independence last year will by and large also vote for the SNP on this particular occasion. And if that happens, given first past the post rules, even with tactical voting, uh, the SNP are going to win a swathe of seats. And the only way that they can be stopped effectively from winning all of the seats, all of Scotland's 59 seats, is if there is tactical voting in place in places between Liberal, Democrat, Conservative and Labour voters to keep the Scottish Nationalists out. And um, with the exception of the the Scottish uh, Sun, um, which is perhaps uh, uh, the product of a friendly relationship between um, Alex Salmond and and Rupert Murdoch, um, you know, the the Scottish people are voting against, I suppose, the the, the tide of of media opinion. Yes, well, there's been a... I mean, that's a long-standing element of the debate in Scotland going back over the last year, year and a half, where people will talk about the MSM, the mainstream media, uh, which is subject to a, a torrent of abuse on social media, sometimes with, with very good criticisms, because it can, for instance, in the case of the Daily Mail, be um, uh, pro-union at all costs and at all times. So it's not that uh, there aren't grounds of complaint. Equally, however, there are, uh, with the cybernats, uh, this, uh, as they are known the the people who tend to support the SNP who live on Twitter can be incredibly abusive, not just to people in the media, but to anybody who says anything with which they don't uh, agree. And the fact that they don't agree with it is fair enough. The the manner in which they disagree with it on occasions can go well beyond uh, the line. So they, there's no doubt that the influence for, for good and, and ill of uh, Twitter and social media generally has been a pretty key factor in the way in which uh, Scottish public opinion has been formed over the last number of years. And it's quite striking when you look at Facebook, for instance, particularly, how 
so many people in Scotland still remain convinced that last year's vote on the referendum was unfair and that it was doctored, and that the postal ballots were interfered with by MI5 and all of these sort of conspiracy theories, for which there is not a scintilla of evidence. Yet you will find very sensible mainstream people who are convinced that, in fact, the result was robbed last year. And that is as a result of what they've been reading and hearing online. Yeah, I mean, I was up in Scotland myself a couple of weeks ago, and, and that was very much the, the subject of, of discussion. Um, a lot of a lot of bad feeling towards the BBC, in particular, from the uh, the yes the yes side of the referendum um, up there. And yeah, n- not justified uh, in the main. Mm. Uh, there are individual reasons for for uh, for criticism, undoubtedly, given the thousands of hours that the BBC devoted to uh, coverage of the referendum campaign. There's no doubt that there were mistakes made, and there were plenty of things that people could complain about. The biggest mistake the BBC made during the referendum last year was the fact that they a didn't wake up to the significance of what was going, happening on the ground in Scotland for too late, and then they sent up some of their top people from London who came up late and because of the nature of that uh, didn't quite get have time to get a feeling for some of the sentiment on the ground. Uh, so it's not that the BBC are blameless, but uh, equally some of the criticism uh, of them has been politically orchestrated, largely led by Alex Salmond on many occasions, and has been very often uh, very unfair. And effectively the tone is that whatever you say, you will say things uh, that we agree with. And if uh, an organisation says anything else, then that organisation is to be condemned. That's not the healthiest way to have public debate in any country. Dr Simpson, how, how do you think that, that the Scottish uh, debate has played out in this election? Um, I mean, it, it's slightly beyond the scope of, of my research. Um, but, you know, the relationship that Alex Salmond has had with Rupert Murdoch, you know, some have likened it to a bromance. And leading up to um, the referendum, everyone was on tender hooks as to whether or not, you know, the Scottish Sun was going to endorse the Yes campaign. Um, and, you know, Rupert Murdoch had sent several tweets in favour of some of the opinion polls at the time that were shifting towards a Yes vote. But actually, you know, the day before the Scottish referendum, on the 18th of September, you know, the Sun said that, you know, they didn't endorse Scottish independence and stated that it had faith in the people to make the right choice. And I think what is interesting in, from this point of view is that despite giving praise for the SNP um, and for the, lead, the leader at the time, Alex Salmond, you can separate two issues here. You can separate support for the SNP by the Sun, which we saw at the referendum and now in the lead-up to this general election, but also support for independence. And there are two, which is a policy issue, so to speak, if you want to go that way. So one is political party, one is an issue. Um, and I think you, you can see that distinction um, in, in something like the Sun newspaper very clearly. And in, in Ireland, we always focus a little bit uh, on the prospect of, of, of a Brexit, a, a British exit from the EU, because of what, what it might mean for us and our economy. But, uh, but, but Britain's membership of the EU doesn't seem to have had much of a look in in this election, has it? No, um, I mean, you know, the, you know, British membership of, of the European Union is, is a, what we often term a salient issue. Um, it, ha- it, ha- it holds political salience. And I think, you know, people have been surprised at how much this, you know, the EU debate or the Brexit has, hasn't been debated as much in this general election campaign. And I think that is perhaps because of the fact that it's been overshadowed or it has been debated in the same way as EU immigration has been. Um, which are two very, very different things. But, you know, a YouGov poll came out yesterday, um, and if there was a referendum on EU membership tomorrow, 45% of people would 
would vote to stay in, while 33% would vote to, to leave. Um, and that is the highest that, that has been in this parliament, which is very interesting. Um, and, you know, obviously it, it's something that certainly from a perspective of Ireland that should would be very much debated and, and very much welcomed about, you know, what would be plans, you know, for a, a Brexit. Um, you know, David Cameron has long said that he would have, would like to hold um, a referendum on Europe in 2017 if the Conservatives got a majority. That is looking unlikely that the Conservatives are going to get a majority. But I think the next question is, well, what coalition government and what red lines are going to be given um, to perhaps have this EU referendum? And are we going to be faced with an EU referendum um, in the UK in the next kind of year um, or two years? Um, and I think that that will be a very topical thing going, you know, post-election going into the future. It does seem something like something that they're uh, forever postponing um, in the UK. Mark, I just have one last question for you. And, and that's just in, in, in the Blair years, we kind of got used to spin doctors having a, a public role and being very high profile. But that's another thing that maybe has changed a little bit, do you think? Well, it's changed in the sense that the spin doctor perhaps doesn't have quite the public role, but uh, there are plenty of people in all of the parties who are doing exactly the same job that Alistair did, uh, perhaps not generating the same headlines. Uh, What has been particularly striking about the campaign in 2015 is the way in which the main party leaders in England, uh, Liberals, uh, the Tories uh, and and Labour, it's a different situation in Scotland, have been living in hermetically sealed um, uh, bubbles almost. Any time that they've gone to uh, out and campaigning, it's been in restricted areas, empty factories, closed off. Uh, playgrounds, etc., etc., etc. Anything, everything is being possibly is being done to keep the public away. And ironically, that is very largely as a result of the influence of social media. It isn't just that politicians have become scared of being heckled, although there is a certain element of that. There is a greater fear that a campaign day and plan can be completely destroyed in the space of a couple of minutes by somebody with a mobile camera uh, and and a, a Twitter account. And they, as a result, the public space has become almost enemy territory for a significant percentage of politicians uh, during this campaign. I mean, I'll give you an example. Tristram Hunt, the, the, uh, the Labour Education uh, Shadow Secretary, was in a primary school in Derbyshire recently and was sitting talking to an eight-year-old in those small tubular chairs that we'll all remember from our days in primary school. And he's six foot four. And uh, he was asking the young fellow what he thought about the election. And the, the lad replied that uh, uh, he'd vote for, for UKIP. And uh, Tristan uh, responded with surprise and said, why? And he said, because I want to get uh, all the foreigners out. Now, on the campaign of 2010, even five years ago, uh, Hunt w- would have been unfortunate had there been a colour writer from one of the Fleet Street papers standing on his shoulder. He would have been particularly unfortunate if the cameraman from BBC West Midlands was there with the camera point pointing in the right direction and the microphone on at that particular time. Whereas on this particular occasion, there were three or four cameras, uh, mobile phone cameras that picked it up. Now, it wasn't a particularly um, uh, unflattering image. I think it was more bizarre than anything else. But nevertheless, it shows you how conscious politicians have become that they can't control any element of their campaign. And 
whilst they, they shouldn't have the, the, the right and freedom to control everything, they do have a necessity to at least be able to put some sort of structure on their campaign so that they can attempt to at least put their messages across to the public and give the public an opportunity to say, well, yay or nay, whether we want to listen to any of it or not. So it's one small slip up and it's replayed endlessly on vines exactly. and gifs and... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Very good. Well, thanks very much to my uh, contributors there, Dr. Catherine Simpson of Manchester University and Mark Hennessy of the Irish Times. Thanks for your time today. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. And now, Greece has made a 200 million euro repayment to the IMF, but there's another much larger bailout repayment looming next week, and the country is gradually running out of cash, so negotiations with creditors continue. On the phone from Brussels to explain what's going on, it's Suzanne Lynch, European correspondent of the Irish Times. Suzanne, why does a deal need to be done? Hi, Laura. Yes, well, I mean, this, the uh, standoff between Greece and its creditors is continuing um, more than three months after the election. But there is a sense that it's really reaching um, a key point at the moment. On Monday, there's a Eurogroup meeting of finance ministers here in Brussels. And the following day, that's Tuesday, the 12th of May, uh, Greece is due to pay back around €750 million Euro in interest repayments to the IMF. So there really is a sense now that Greece needs to get some kind of renegotiated deal to unlock some of the bailout money that's due to it in order to meet these bills. So does uh, the Greek government have some red line negotiation issues here? Yeah, well, there's been a lot of um, posturing on both sides. Officials from the Greek side and from the uh, the Troika, the, the ECB, the European Commission and the IMF have been locked in negotiations here in Brussels for the past few days. Um, there are, is some information leaking out. Um, it looks like the main areas of contention are uh, reforms of the labour market, uh, pensions and privatisations. Um, the Troika has continuously pressed Greece to, uh, you know, to privatise everything from ports um, to other parts of the economy. And there, there does seem to be some movement on this uh, from the Greek side, from the Swiss-led government. Um, they have said that they are prepared to look at privatisations of the main ports there in Athens, for example. Um, now, it looks like there's going to have to be some kind of movement on some of those three areas from uh, the Greek side. On the other side of things, we may see uh, the official creditors um, making some concessions in terms of Greece's primary surplus. They've always, since the beginning, really, of the, of the Greek bailout, they've been pushing Greece to deliver a strong primary surplus each year. And they had been getting to that point. But now it looks like the lenders may be prepared to accept a lower figure. And that might be the concessions that they make on their side as they both try and, and compromise in some way to get some kind of a deal. So would you say there's optimism now for a deal? 
Yeah, I mean, I think last week the, one of the significant changes was the, the sidelining of the of the Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis from the negotiations. Um, he'd been quite unpopular here in Brussels. He had squandered a lot of political capital that that the Syriza had just after the elections. But um, officials here said that you know the in, the inference was that he's extremely difficult to deal with, and there was a, there was a little in terms of detail that he was prepared to discuss. So this move by the Greek Prime Minister to effectively dismiss Varoufakis from the negotiation team last week and was seen as a sign of conciliatory gesture from Athens. And it did uh, breed some optimism. Now, undoubtedly, talks have resumed here since late last week and have been going better. In saying that, there had been hope that maybe there could have been a provisional deal last weekend, last Sunday or Monday, but that hasn't happened. So there are still divisions. Um, now, the Greek, one of the, the other kind of aspects that happened this week is that it emerged that the IMF and the EU lenders have, there's a degree of difference between them and what, what, what's the best way to handle this. The IMF is pushing for perhaps more debt relief for Greece. The EU side is against that. So what we've seen this week is that the Greek government is kind of exploiting this to an extent and saying, well, actually, the problem, the delay here is not us. It's the divisions within the Troika, and that's what's holding things up. So, I mean, what's the situation now on the ground in Greece? Um, well, at the, I mean, there, there's still uncertainty about how much cash Greece actually has. Um, it's got two main outlays, really. It has to repay its debt and its interest payments as they fall due to its lenders. And it has to meet the day-to-day uh, requirements of running a country, the pensions, the salaries of public sector, sector workers, etc. Um, now, earlier this month, um, or in late April, the Greece, Greek government ordered the local authorities to essentially make their cash reserves available to central government. Um, and there was a lot of resistance from the various mayors around Greece. But this is one of the ways uh, they have to try and keep keep the, the coffers going. And today, um, on, on Wednesday, they did pay a €200 million Euro repayment to the IMF, which is a good sign. But this repayment next week, the €750 million, is obviously um, a lot more. Um, so um, that is really going to be uh, the, the key date as we look forward in the next few days and weeks to what's going to happen next in this standoff. Okay, so it's kind of a case of scraping it together, I guess, is it? Yes, I mean, again, it could be, people are, there's a lot of mistrust between the two sides. So um, one of the constant refrains that one hears from the officials uh, that have been working in Athens from the Troika have been, uh, you know, lack of access to uh, the books, essentially. And so it's very unclear about how much uh, money is in the Greek uh, coffers. Um, In saying that, we're seeing bond markets react quite negatively uh, this week to the latest developments um, and really reflecting a concern about Greece's ability um, to, to get its way out of this situation. Um, and I mean, the, the other issue is that what, the, the phrase uh, that we had the phrase Grexit was also a uh, Grexit has now come into the lexicon, suggesting that, you know, this could very quickly happen, that, you know, the, the things are on a knife edge, really. For example, if Greece didn't pay a repayment to the IMF, is it technically then in default? Yes, it is. And, and what could that spur? Um, and that it could accidentally find itself in default and maybe on its way out of the euro. 
The other thing to, to watch for is the role of the ECB, because, you know, not least in the Irish bailout, we saw this, that it paid play a key role behind the scenes in the terms of how, how this Greek bailout negotiations are going. And uh, today the ECB Governing Council are meeting and again reviewing the provision of emergency liquidity assistance to Greek, Greek banks. The ECB is essentially uh, keeping the banks afloat, which well, is keeping the banks afloat, and could uh, effectively pull the plug at any time. But there is a sense that the ECB is reluctant to move to do anything that drastic without the political agreement of the Eurozone finance ministers. So it's more likely that if the ECB was going to move in any way, it would be, say, after next Monday's meeting of the Eurogroup, when they see what the situation is there in terms of the bailout deal and, and what the Eurozone finance ministers are saying. Okay, so there's a meeting of finance ministers on Monday, a big payment uh, deadline on Tuesday, and we'll be covering that, of course, on irishtimes.com and in the Irish Times. Um, But for now, thank you very much, Suzanne. That was Irish Times European correspondent Suzanne Lynch there from Brussels. And that's it this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast with me, Laura Slattery. My thanks to all our contributors, producer Sinead O'Shea and sound engineer JJ Vernon. Just a reminder that you can get the latest business news straight to your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email, and you can do that at irishtimes.com. Until next time, when there may or may not be a Greek deal and a new government in number 10, goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.